Lord, please help me to be able to deliver your word clearly, unambiguously, in an understanding way, with practical application, so that when we come to leave this place, we may go out knowing that we have met with you, that the Lord Jesus, speaking through his word, has spoken to our own hearts. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now we come here to Herod, and we're still on God and government, because I think there's some things in this Christmas story that really illustrate God and government. We've looked in the past at dealing with tyrants at least twice, looking at Nebuchadnezzar. But Herod is a, what do they call it, sui generis. He's one of a kind. He truly is a megalomaniacal maniac who is gripped profoundly by paranoia. And we look at his predecessor, King Saul. King Saul, when he realized that God was going to take away his kingdom from him, also became megalomaniacal. And we know in the case of King Saul that when Saul rejected the word of God, God withdrew his anointing from King Saul. Let me distinguish between the anointing of God for office and the presence of the Holy Spirit in and on a person's life. The Holy Spirit never leaves someone who is a true believer. I don't know whether King Saul is going to be in heaven or not. I don't know that. I know that if he truly was one of God's own, The Spirit never totally left him in the sense of leaving a believer. But the Spirit of God does withdraw his anointing from people as an anointing for service. King Saul had been anointed for service. That's quite distinct from being becoming a believer, being born again. But when the Spirit of God withdrew his anointing from Saul to be king, something happened. Nature doesn't like vacuums. And God Almighty authorized a demonic spirit to torment Saul. Why would God do things like that? Well, God does things like that so that if a person belongs to the Lord, he will not be comfortable in living in sin. And so Saul was tormented by an evil spirit. And in Saul's paranoia and rage, not only did he throw a spirit David to try to kill him, but even his own son, Jonathan, his firstborn child, he threw a spirit Jonathan to kill him and cursed him out, said terrible things about Jonathan's mother. So Herod is not the first paranoid, crazy king in Israel's history. But he is a unique person in many ways. First of all, he is a descendant of Esau. And you remember what the prophet said about Esau. Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated or rejected. King Herod was keenly aware that he was at least half an Edomite, that is a descendant of Esau. And that led him to paranoia. It also led him to be suspicious that people were going to try to kill him. He was a very, very short man. He was four feet and some inches. He was very short, and he held his position because his father 
had connived with the Roman emperors. And so what we find is that Herod, Herod the Great, backed the Roman emperors. And he was very blessed to have backed the winners here and there. So he's in power by virtue of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, never forget this about empires. Empires, no matter what they may say in public, are not about the welfare of their client states. Empires throughout history select rulers who will do two things. Keep order, no matter what they have to do, and keep the money flowing back to the capital of the empire. That's history, ad infinitum. And so the Roman Empire isn't interested in Herod the Great being a good man. They just want the money flowing back to Rome, and they want peace and order because it's costly to try to put down a revolt in a client state. And so Herod is as nutty as a Corsicana fruitcake, the best fruitcake I've ever eaten. And Herod even murders his two sons, his own sons, because of how paranoid he is that somebody's going to try to kill him or overthrow him. And that led the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, to make a joke about Herod. Remember, contrary to the movie The Passion of the Christ, the lingua franca of the Roman Empire was not Latin. That was the language right around Rome. The lingua franca or the common tongue throughout the empire was Greek. And so Caesar Augustus, Octavian, made a joke about Herod, and I've told the joke before, probably last year around Christmas, that Herod the Great, uh, since he did try to practice Judaism, would not eat pig meat. And so Caesar Augustus made this joke around the table, better to be Herod's Hus than Herod's huios sound like puns. I love puns, the lowest form of humor. But Octavian, Caesar Augustus, liked puns as well. Hus in Greek means pig, and huios in Greek means son. And so here's Herod the Great, and you can see exactly what he does. He learns from the Magi that the Messiah of Israel had been born. And this gives us a sense, first of all, that our manger scenes are a little off because it's not on the night that Jesus was born that the wise men came. If we look there at Matthew chapter 2 and verse 16, that when he realized he'd been tricked by the Magi, He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. So he's not taking any chances. Whatever else that means, it means this, that it wasn't on the night that Jesus was born that the Magi came. It means that probably there are some months in between, and we know that because as we look at Luke's account, we know that on the night that Jesus was born, they stuck around Bethlehem. 
And they did long enough for Jesus to be circumcised on the one hand on the eighth day. And they stuck around long enough for his mother Mary to undergo the purification rites uh, of a Jewish woman who had given birth to a son. And so we're talking about at least 40 days have passed in our manger scene before we can bring the wise men uh, there. So Herod is paranoid. And I want you to reflect with me for a moment. How many crazy people have ruled over others in the history of the world? You know, the first thing you notice this. To run for political office probably is an indication that someone should see a psychiatrist. Politics is is now and always has been very dirty business. And the master stroke in politics is the last minute surprise. You keep your dirty stuff at hand until it's so close to the election that the other person will have difficulty countering it. And then you pull it out. Politics always has been dirty business. And so we see that throughout history, people who tend to suffer from, if not narcissistic personality disorder, which is a true classified mental illness, certainly have a lot of narcissism. You know, in South Pacific, she sings about, I'm in love with a wonderful guy. And you know, when I look in the mirror, there's a little bit of narcissism there. (laughs) And as I age, the narcissism fades. But the point is that we all have a lot of self-love. And people who really have a massive dose of it tend to believe the nonsense that they're fed. I never will forget meeting with a man who had been the district attorney of Grant Parish, which is just bordering Rapides Parish, where we've lived since 1975. And his political party wanted to run someone against the incumbent. And they went to him and they said, we want you to run against Richard Ayub for attorney general. And the man believed it. And all the preachers told, oh, yes, Eddie, you ought to do that. You ought to do that. And I alone told him, Eddie, they just want to jerk Ayub's chain. They're not going to back you with money. They're not going to back you with support. They're not going to put the political machine of their political party behind you so that you'll win. And sure enough, I hosted his victory party in my home. Sure enough, he lost. The point is that politics is about using people to get them to do what you want them to do. And that's true throughout history. Now, as we look at Herod, we see something, and that is there's a prophecy alluded to here in verse 18. 
Matthew 2.18. A voice is heard in Ramah. That happens to be the home of the prophet Samuel, also where Rachel, near where Rachel was buried. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And if you look at the bottom of the page, that's a reference to Jeremiah 31.15. Now, we're not going to look there. But what I do want you to see is that Jeremiah 31 is not a negative passage. Jeremiah 31 is a positive passage. It's about the new covenant. And it talks about Israel returning to their homeland. But in the middle of that prophecy, Jeremiah prophesies this very thing. Returning to the Jews' homeland following the Babylonian captivity is not going to be everything hunky-dory, everything coming up roses, no problems. In fact, right in there, there's this prophecy. And in the middle of that prophecy, he goes on to say, but they will return. And here's our comfort. In the world that's full of tragedies, in a world that's full of genocidal politics and genocidal wars, Rachel will see her children. Those children who died because of King Herod one day will walk this earth and be reunited with their mothers. That we can garner from Jeremiah 31. But there's something else here. Think of, think of it. What if you, and this takes us back to the sermon about dealing with tyrants. What if you had been one of Herod's soldiers? Would you have said, I can't obey this order? What would have happened had you refused to obey Herod's offer, order? Not only would you be killed, but not unlikely your whole family would be killed. Never forget that governments other than the government of our Lord Jesus Christ, are rooted in power and terror. Power and terror. The way that most rulers rule is by means of terrorism. That's a striking statement to say, isn't it? It's terror that causes people to fear the government and to fear to rise up against the government. So as we look at all of that, what happens? How do we deal with a maniacal ruler, with a crazy king? And I believe that we find great lessons in what Joseph is instructed to do. What is he instructed to do? Look at Matthew 2 and verse 13. As soon as the wise men have left, notice what happens, verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, sometime get a concordance and look up the word dream and see how many times the word dream appears in the Gospel of Matthew. Joseph did not divorce Mary because in those days being engaged was, in effect, marriage without the act of marriage, the consummation. And the reason he didn't put her away, and the reason indeed that he could have had Mary executed, is because the angel of the Lord came to him in a dream. Now notice the angel of the Lord 
uh, comes to Joseph in a dream, and he says, Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And unlike a beautiful movie, uh, not a Christmas story, uh, it's the nativity story, uh, where everything all appears at once, and they madly run away, the point is, there was no delay. Joseph did exactly what the angel of the Lord told him, and he got out of the vicinity of Herod's empire. He went down to another part of the Roman Empire, to Egypt, and he did exactly what he was told. Now, in verse 14, so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. So I want us to extract some lessons from this. Sometimes what God is calling us to do, and I submit to you what God is calling us to do in our era between the first coming and second coming of Christ is to avoid conflict with government. I'll say it again. In this time, between the first coming and the second coming of Christ, God is instructing us to avoid conflict with government. I want you to turn with me to a passage of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we want to look there at verses 11 and 12. And that is on page 1840. Page 1840. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11. This, I believe, is a passage of Scripture that should guide us between the first coming and second coming of Christ. We are not like those who lived in the days of Judges, commissioned by God to rise up and, and kill those who rule over us. What are we called to do? Let's look at this word because it is very applicable. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. What does that mean? He means you need to rest. It means you need to rest in quiet, in Christ. He amplifies it. He says to mind your own business. Have you ever met people who don't mind their own business and are always minding somebody else's business? And unless God has called you to be in politics or in service to the government, your instruction is what? Mind your own business. Mind your own business. Lead a quiet life. Turn off that blankety-blank idiot box. Don't be preoccupied with 24-hour news. It's driving people stark, raving mad. Lead a quiet life. Get up in the morning. Put quiet music on. Read your Bible. Pray. Get your heart settled and right with the Lord. Make it your ambition. That means it needs to be your goal every day to lead a quiet life. And then to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you, just as we told you. In other words, in the words of the larger catechism, questioning and telling us 
what our duties are under the, under the uh, second commandment according to our place and calling we are to deal with things. And I love hearing Iona in church. Please let her continue uh, to give me those little amens. <laughs> and so what, what God is saying is this, according to our place and calling. What is your place? What is your calling? What is my place? What is my calling? Unless God has put me in a position of authority and power, my place and calling is to lead a quiet life, to ignore what's going on in the world and pray about it, and to mind my own business. You know, I think that social media is the greatest tool of the evil one to stir people up. Now, I use it for propaganda purposes. That's a great tool for evangelism. Once in a while, I'll find a, a good picture, like the picture of my wife during the first year of our marriage when she was looking out the window of our trailer with a Siamese kitten. And I use a pretty picture like that, and I write about it, and that gets a lot of people to look at it. And it's a tool to get people's attention. But what I do is I try periodically to do something that makes people really think and that will make people, some people may be angry. And if I did that all the time, people wouldn't be looking at what I put up. So I pray about it and I use it that way. But never forget that everything that you put up on Facebook is recorded and you can never get it fully erased. And it's what happens is, and I know this by experience, you get obsessed. What's going on with this person? What's going on with that person? And before long, you've wasted 40 minutes. And the worst place to go in the early morning is television news or Facebook. And I'm not, I'm not trying to make sense out of things that are not inherently sinful. I'm simply saying... You've got to take measures every single solitary day to quieten your heart, to still your heart, that when thoughts intrude and make you afraid, when thoughts intrude and make you angry, when thoughts intrude and get you all upset, you've got to do something. Remember this. Nothing you do or I do makes any difference unless God is in the act and blessing it according to our place and calling. So he says, I want you to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands, just as we told you. Verse 12, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. That's a tall order. In other words, avoid conflict. I saw a discussion on Facebook just this week uh, involving a friend of mine who happens to be a Presbyterian minister and going on about calling the law on his neighbor's dog and calling the law on somebody had called the law on him about a fence he would put up he had put up that wasn't according to code and as I pondered that I thought of this what is the purpose of my life? 
The purpose of my life is not making my neighborhood where everybody lives according to the way I think they ought to live. The purpose of my life is to be a light for the Lord Jesus Christ in a dark, dying, depraved world. That's what I'm called to be. So if I'm wronged, if I'm harmed, if I'm suffering, that's okay. How can you say that? Well, I'll tell you how I can say it. Turn with me to the left to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I think this is quite striking. And uh, look at verse 23. 1 Corinthians 7, 23, page 1779. Paul says, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he was a free man when he was called as Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Now, what is he saying? He's saying that if you're able to get your freedom as a slave, go ahead and do it. But his main point is, don't let it bother you. Don't let it upset you. You know, people look at this, particularly people whose ancestors served in slavery. And they reject Paul and say, well, this man obviously didn't, was not inspired by the Holy Spirit when he wrote these words because he's telling people, don't worry about being a slave. If you can become free, go ahead and become free. And avoid that which will get you into slavery. But I want you to see something if you turn all the way to your right to 1 Peter, which is very striking. 1 Peter, and we want to look here at 1 Peter and chapter 2, beginning at verse 13, page 1888. Avoid conflict. Avoid trouble. Fly below the radar. Look at what he says, first of all, 1 Peter 2.13. And this is a powerful passage of Scripture. And, And he says, first of all, in verse 13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. Why do you submit to authorities that are put in place? He says, for the Lord's sake. In other words, the purpose of your life. What's the purpose of my life? Do I really want to live beyond the time that I fulfill God's purpose in my life? As Almighty God is my witness, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I don't want to live one day, one hour, one minute beyond the time that I count for God. I don't mind living in a nursing home. Of course, I don't want to. I don't mind being like Miss Mary McFarland, who was a member of the congregation I served in Wichita, Kansas. She'd been a missionary in China till the Christians were thrown out. And then she was a missionary in Japan. And finally, when she was too old to work for the mission board, she retired and she retired to Wichita, Kansas. And she used to get on the bus and ride to neighborhoods where there were Chinese children. And she would have backdoor, backyard, neighborhood Bible classes for little Chinese children. And her nephew came to me one day and he said, I'm worried about my aunt. 
We need to put her in a nursing home. I said, look, let her do what she's going to do. Well, she's liable to get run over. I said, if she gets run over, so what? Well, eventually he had his way and she was put in a nursing home. And I remember the last time I went to see Miss Mary McFarland. She never married, but she had thousands of children because she adopted spiritually all those Chinese children, not only in China, but in Japan and then in Wichita. And here she was. Visualize it with me, if you will. Miss Mary had lost a lot of weight. Her dentures no longer fit. And so what she had to do as she took her spoon of eggs or her spoon of gruel was to use her tongue and push her upper dentures up and then with great lingual dexterity as she would put the spoon in her mouth she would lower her tongue and she would chew and eat her food. Now, I don't know about you, but that is not how I want to end my life. I don't want to die that way, having to use my tongue to push my uppers up so I can get the gruel and the scrambled eggs inside my mouth as I then pull my tongue down and eat them. But you know what? Unlike the candle of joy, which is fading, if not totally extinguished. No, it's still there. Miss Mary, the joy in Miss Mary's life was there. It was in that nursing home. Miss Mary died a happy woman because the meaning of Miss Mary's life was the Lord Jesus Christ, to love him, to know him more, and to make him known. And so, as he says in Second Peter, First Peter, chapter two and verse thirteen, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. See two purposes of government: to restrain evil and to create an environment where hard work, thrift, honesty. And good morals are rewarded. And then he says in verse 15, For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. And then he goes on, he says, Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. So what does God want you to do? He wants you to live a life in this world avoiding conflict with government. Fly below the radar. Remember again, you don't want to be the opposite of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They respectfully declined to obey. Now I want you to notice something else. Look at the very next verse. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect. Now think about King Herod. Was he nutty as a Corsican of fruitcake? Oh yeah. Was King Saul at the end nutty as a Claxon fruitcake? Oh yeah. But remember David, 
David refused to ever lift a hand against the Lord's anointed. And notice what he says here to slaves, not only to those who were good and considerate, but also to those who were harsh. What? I thought freedom was the meaning of life. I thought that that movie that the producer of The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson, the movie Braveheart, that's all about the meaning of life. Freedom! Is that the meaning of life? No. The meaning of life is freedom in Christ. Freedom to be Christ's slave. Freedom to serve others for the sake of Jesus. And he says, not only those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Now notice what he says in verse 19. For it's commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, because he is conscious of God. Verse 20, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was in his, found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And then going back to Matthew 2 in closing, what do we find in the case of Herod the Great and Joseph? This is what we find. Joseph can trust the Lord to take care of him and his family. God visits him in a dream through an angel, tells him to go. And then God visits him in a dream and tells him to come back. And then he warns him again. Do this, do that. We can trust God to take care of us. We don't have to have weapons. Now, am I saying that guns are wrong? Of course not. I have some guns. What I'm saying is, put no confidence in princes, nor for help on man depend, nor on the 357 Magnum stainless steel revolver, or in a AR-15. But trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. What good are your weapons in the final analysis except as a deterrent to somebody hurting you and your family? Do you take up arms against the government? I don't find that in the Bible. What about being a slave? What is the advice of Peter and of Paul to slaves? Do you remember what happened before the birth of Christ? There was a slave uprising. It was led by a man named Spartacus. He defeated Roman armies until finally the empire decided we're going to put an end to this. And what did they do? They crucified all those slaves. The point is, only God can change government effectively. And every time that men have set their hands to overthrow government, it's backfired. Think about it. 
Think about the American War for Independence. Notice what I called it. It was not a revolution. It was legal authority uniting against a foreign power to protect the people. The American War for Independence was not a revolution. What about the French Revolution? Was it a revolution? Oh, absolutely. And what did it lead to? It led to a bloodbath, not only in France for the people they hated, but also the very revolutionaries themselves end up with a guillotine. What about the Russian Revolution? Did it result in great blessing to the Russian people? Oh, no. It was a horrible thing. And the suffering of the Russian people under the yoke of the Marxist-Leninist, especially under Stalin, was unspeakable. Unspeakable. And right now in the Ukraine, there's a movement against the Orthodox Church. Wow. Revolutions. Revolutions rarely accomplish what the perpetrators believe is going to happen. So what does God want for you? Get out of Judea when Herod's in power. Avoid it, evade it, fly below the radar. What does that mean practically speaking? It's back to 1 Thessalonians, and that is lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Turn off that infernal idiot box. Open your Bible. Put on good, quiet Christian music. Tune your heart to sing his praise. And when you have established that in your own soul, then maybe you've got enough sanctification on a daily basis for just a moment to turn on the news. I remember the news when it came on as a boy when we bought the second television in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. It was very short, 15 minutes, and then the local news. Wow. People who keep that infernal thing on day and night are being driven stark, raving, insane. But people who get their Bibles out, who study it and say, Lord, show me my sins, show me your will for my life, and enable me this day to lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness. That's what honors the Lord. And may God Almighty, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, deliver us from having a King Herod rule over us. May we pray. Lord, we pray that you would bless us. We pray for us as a people living in a lovely place. Lord, how long will that loveliness continue? We don't know. But Lord, we pray that you would grant to us the wisdom to put first things first, to seek first every day your kingdom and your righteousness, knowing that as we do that, everything that we need will be provided, even if it's your sending an angel in a dream telling us to move out of town. Lord, we thank you that we can trust you to take care of us and those that belong to us. May our lives count always for you as lights shining in the darkness. May our neighbors not see us as contentious people standing up for our rights against our perceived uh, injuries from their hands. But may they see us as gentle and kind people who love you so much that we love them, even in their ugliness. For Jesus' sake, 